Hello, everyone. Today on Arash's World, we have a very special guest, Erika Komisar, and she is um, um, author of a fascinating book. Uh, it's called uh, Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling, Raising Resilient Adolescents in the New Age of Anxiety. It's a fascinating book. Um, welcome to the show. And could you just please introduce yourself briefly in any way you see fit, Erika? Sure, sure. Well, as you said, I'm a, uh, my name is Erika Komisar. I'm a psychoanalyst and a parent guidance expert. And this is my second book. My first was called Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters, and which was about the first critical window of brain development that helps with things like emotional regulation and resilience to stress. And now this second book is about the second critical window of brain development, which is adolescence, which is nine to 25. Wonderful. So there are two brain growth periods. And so from zero to three, as you're mm -hmm. saying, and then we have uh, adolescence. What can you tell us about these, uh, these uh, spurts of growth that happen? And what should we watch out for in each of these uh, critical periods? Well, I mean, the first critical period is uh, by, by the age of three, 85% of the right brain or the social, mo social emotional brain of a child is developed. So um, that's means, and, and in that period of time, the environment is very important and stress has a great impact on the environment. Um, and so, you know, the more you can be there in those first three years to help to soothe them from moment to moment, what it does is it actually biologically regulates the emotions of your child. So every time you sue the baby in the first three years, you're actually priming the pump. You're actually laying down the foundation of emotional security uh, or the, the trust in the environment that it's a safe place, um, which is the foundation for resilience to stress later on. And, you know, mothers or primary attachment figures in those first three years also do something called stress buffering, which is they buffer their child from too much stress. And that keeps the stress or the stress regulating or threat sensing part of the brain, the amygdala, very quiet. We say it doesn't come online or it shouldn't come online in a healthy situation too much in the first year. Um, what we're finding is that more children are being um, left earlier and earlier, being put in institutional care like daycare. Um, they're not with their primary attachment figures, so they don't have that emotional, emotionally secure foundation. And they're going into adolescence, which is the second critical window of development, with less emotional security, right? With less of an ability to regulate their emotions and less of an ability to deal with the adversity, which is adolescence. So I will just say that adolescence is in and of itself an adversity. Adolescence is even in a healthy situation, adolescence is a trauma. Um, and then you layer on top of that when things don't go quite right, when a teenager's social life isn't quite right, or there's conflict in the family, or marital issues, or an illness, or they're moving, or um, these issues on top of what is already um, what I call the moving of the tectonic plates, literally their brain in the second critical window of development. So say that the first nine years of life is uh, neuronal growth. It's, um, well, every second, a million neurons are, are firing, are, are, are developing. Every second, a million every second. That's called neurogenesis, right? That happens for the first nine years. So then you have too many cells, too many brain cells. And then from nine to 25, you have the reorganization of those cells and the pruning back, getting rid of the stuff you don't need. And that's as critical in many ways as the growth of those cells. And so again, once again, you as a parent have an incredible impact on that child because their brain is once again, very vulnerable. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I love uh, neuroscience and I've, I've been reading about it. Uh, your book is a godsend because I have a 12 year old who's turning 13 in a few days. And uh, a lot of the things that you're talking about, we've been doing, uh, especially also when, when he was a baby. But there's the idea of independence and there's a lot of confusion uh, mm -hmm. Not with the kids, actually, but with the parents and with yes. the educators. I remember watching uh, The Dog Whisperer with Cesar Milan, and he works with dogs, but actually he's working with the owners because the dogs are not the problem in many of the cases. 
it's the owners or the parents. Now, right. it is a natural state because their body's growing, their hormones are, are, are changing, their body's changing, but we have so much say in it and we have uh, so much control over it as well. And by creating that emotional foundation. So the idea of independence uh, from, for example, my son's school and my interpretation of independence yeah. are vastly different. And we clash often because they believe if he can tie his shoes and pack his lunch, he's independent. And that's not it. It lacks the emotional foundation. So I was wondering if you can talk a bit about that, the idea of independence and then emotional foundation as well, emotional security that goes with it. Well, so there's two things that are happening in adolescence, and this is in normal adolescent development, right? So a lot of the book talks about what to look for that is just normal. And uh, the two most important milestones of adolescence are separation and individuation. So from an emotional perspective, separation means learning to function in the world physically separate than your parents. Um, as well as emotionally separate, pushing your parents away. It's so one of the main tasks of um, adolescents is to create distance between you and your parents a little bit, um, because you know without that distance and without the, the, the confidence and the feeling that you can do things on your own or function in a world without them, you can't, you can't really leave home. So separation is physical and emotional distance. And then the second thing that is critical is individuation, which is, okay, now we're separate, but who are we separate from them? What is our identity as a person separate from our parents' identity? So those are two very different tasks that have to be accomplished for an adolescent to be healthy and they're painful because if you think about separation, you, you've leaned on and depended on this parent, hopefully if it's a healthy situation, you've been dependent on this parent emotionally and physically uh, for so many years. And now you have to push away the person that's been the source of your security and your support um, and depend on your peers or depend on your teachers or start to depend a little bit more on yourself. It's a very painful process and it's full of conflict. So the, the result of that is one day you'll see an adolescent hugging you and kissing you and telling you they love you and they need you. And the next day, not speaking to you and yelling at you and slamming the door and just not, not talking to you. Um, and it will go, it could go day to day like that. It could be like that in the same day, you could have a part of the day where they're loving and hugging you. And then the next minute they're, they're pushing you away. So it is a conflict in them that has to get resolved. And the way it gets resolved is it's not binary. So everything to an adolescent feels binary, meaning black and white, uh, right and wrong. Um, either I'm with my parents or I'm not with my parents, either I'm dependent on them or I'm independent. When, the, when what happens as a result at the end of that 25 year period is that that child who's now a young adult realizes that it's not binary. You can love your parents and still depend on them sometimes and still be independent sometimes. Um, but in this period where they're trying to figure this out, it's very painful and it feels as if there's only two choices. When I'm reading all this about uh, adolescence, and again, a lot of it was very, was very helpful. For example, they they um, they overstimulate with things like playing playing video games and so on, and that we should not get worried about that. So that was one of our concerns. But it's kind of a, a normal phase they go through to like exaggerate and want more of everything and sh sugar, chocolate, and so on. So that is a natural development that actually helps uh, with our anxiety. It's like okay, yeah. things are going well. And not be, he's not going to be addicted to it later on. It's just a phase. But as I'm reading all of this, I'm thinking of a lot of adults who are like that, who are in that mindset. And one thing I've, I've noticed when I, when I talk to people, it's their, their age, the physical age is not the same as their emotional age. So a lot of people are stuck in that teenage, uh, teenage age, whether it's uh, you're either with us or, or, or you're out or, or um, black and white way of thinking. Yeah. And uh, I, I find that quite fascinating because I look around, it's like, these are basically teenagers acting out, but they are officially adults. And I like the term also that you mentioned that uh, chads, child adults, and I see them all around. So, yeah. so yeah. How, how can we deal with that too? 
Well, it's also, you know, in my practice, obviously, I see a lot of adult patients who um, a lot of their pain goes back to adolescence, and they have a kind of amnesia about adolescence. So they either can't remember anything about adolescence, or they can't remember the painful parts of adolescence. Um, and so, you know, a, a lot of the, as you say, a lot of the symptoms that we see in adults um, go back to adolescence. And therapy is about getting people to reflect on where in that development. So I guess you could say I'm sort of a developmentalist. I'm a psychoanalyst. And, and uh, as someone who believes in the idea that you can get trapped or stuck in a certain period of development and not keep moving. We're meant to move through stages of development, but we don't always. If there's a trauma, if there's a loss, if there's um, you know something that interrupts development, we can get kind of stuck there in a way um, and go on in other in certain ways, but be stuck there in other ways. And so therapy uh, kind of opens doors and windows so you can go back and um, you know resolve conflicts that didn't get resolved early on and kind of gets gets development jump started again. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I am I am huge on Freud, and I think just kind of like Melanie Klein, I think in, in many ways he's uh, over the past few years he's saved my life in in, in many ways of liberating myself and finding myself, and uh, and and that is true. I mean, we we do. There's a lot of uh, emotions we don't process that get stuck, and then it it pulls us back. Uh, you're talking about adolescence with one foot in the past and and one in the present, but I think a lot of adults are like that. And it's basically, we, we shut the doors. We don't want to feel things. We want to grow out of it. We want to grow up, toughen up, and so on. And all of these, these ideas are actually hindering us. They're blocking us. And um, talking about children, even younger children, the idea of play. I mean, it's not a waste of time. They are imagining the future uh, ways of being, the future jobs, the future lives. And the, the brain of the adolescent up to, again, as you're saying, age 25, is constantly growing and is preparing for the life ahead. So this, these, these are phases that they're going through. And then it kind of becomes more static, doesn't grow as much. But when we have those traumatic experiences, when we don't go through those emotions, through those stages, which are painful, and which is why a lot of people try to avoid them, but when we don't do that, uh, we get blocked. And so this was my realiz realization as well of a lot of things that happened in the past. Once you deal with them, you become freer and more, more reasonable and more yourself as well and calmer. So they uh, just to mention also the judge judgmental. So you say they're very judgmental, but at the same time, they're afraid of judgment. So it's it's kind of interesting, that kind of dilemma. But once that I think that fear, anxiety is taken out of the way and acceptance comes in, not of only of your child, but of yourself, then we can really make progress in that mm -hmm. sense. Well, I think as parents, too, it's very important to look at your child and see which characteristics of your child push your buttons and to see whether they, I mean, I have a whole chapter on that, right? The yeah. idea that whether those buttons that are getting pushed are buttons which are unresolved conflicts for you, meaning whether they learned that behavior from you, whether it's anxiety or depression or paranoia or um, harsh self-criticism or um, judgment, those are characteristics that we, we pass down to our children and sometimes without knowing it, right, sort of unconsciously pass them down. So, yeah. Absolutely. I think that there are really three ways uh, how we measure time. It's uh, one of it is, is our body because we, we, we constantly think we're in the same time zone, time period, but we are getting older and our body is getting older. Uh, the outside world is changing. That's another way of perception of time. But most importantly, if you do have a child, it's your child. And it has really woken us up. He's not a kid anymore. Now he's an adolescent and soon he will be an adult. And there is a, a painful growth that comes with that. With that. And I, I tend to watch myself too and my reactions. Like when he says something, why does that make me upset? Or why does that make me feel sad and so on? And it's, again, as, as you're saying, a lot of things that go back, those layers of trauma that we need to go through. And once we do that, our relationship, not only with ourselves, but with our children, with our loved ones and so on, is improving in, 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 in many ways as well. Mm -hmm, absolutely.
Um, one of the things is also our society. And um, when I'm reading your book, I feel a sense of like dread and anxiety coming on, kind of like a bit of a negative outlook on what's what's happening in the world. And I, I see it more as a real opportunity where we can really do something with it. But I can see the worry there. And so one of the worries is we continue to live in a world that is very materialistic. We are looking at a consumer lifestyle. We've been doing it for, for various decades now, and, uh, and it is not good. And the, the, the technology that goes with it, social media and all these uh, images of, of perfect people and a perfect lifestyle, and then money being the driving force at the expense of our relationships with each other. So um, can you comment a bit about that, that influence of technology and that lifestyle that is, I yeah. think, detrimental to our to ourselves and our lifestyles? Well, I mean, I always say social media is has a great impact on children, but a lot of how children learn values is they really learn their values at home. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as much as I want to say social media impacts children, it's really the values that you pass down to your children that you share with your children. If material uh, success and high achievement professionally is prioritized in your life, if the superficial is prioritized and appearances are prioritized, that is what your children learn as a value. Um, whereas if you value relationships and family and um, you know, meaningful work, and that meaningful work, work may not be remunerated with huge amounts of money and material success, but it's another kind of, you know, sort of very dramatic kind of success that's meaningful to you. It's what you teach your children. It's a value system. Um, parents always come to me and ask me, how do I keep my children from being entitled? It's sort of along the same lines of, of, of how we perceive of success, you know? Um, and I always say that, you know, entitlement is something that um, entitlement comes from deprivation. You teach your children what's valuable and what's not valuable. So really looking at our children is a little bit like looking in a mirror sometimes. Absolutely, yes. And so if our children are overvaluing the superficial, if they're overvaluing material success, if they're overvaluing uh, obsessional high achievement in school, which is causing them great anxiety, uh, we may have unconsciously or consciously had a lot to do with that, right? So if a parent comes and says, oh, my child's so anxious, and I, I say, well, I mean, there seems to be a tremendous amount of pressure on this child to get A's in school, uh, as opposed to just doing the best that they can without overloading themselves, and the best that they can may not be A's. And are you okay with that? And they're you know, like, oh, 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 sure, sure, I'm fine with that. But, you know, we're not going to get into a good college. And I'm like, well, let's look at your anxiety about this because you're passing this down to your children. So the values come from us. That's where it critically comes from more than anything. Social media can only reinforce values that they learn at home. It can't, it can't create values for your child. It can only reinforce them. And, and that pressure of perfectionism we see a lot. And for me, that's the drive because you're insecure and you're trying to make things as good as possible so, so others don't give uh, an unfavorable judgment on it and, and so on. But the other problem is also uh, the limitless choices that we're getting. I, I see that like if I go to a restaurant and they have a menu that has like tons and tons of food items, I will get confused and overwhelmed. And I think we get the same with people who are um, suffering from, from FOMO, right? a fear of missing out because of all this information and now we're adding to it um, a new dimension as well in terms of their their sexuality their gender and so on so it's just it seems like overwhelming and it's given as like a ticket to empowerment but in many ways as you say in your book it's paralyzing and so uh, how can we deal with this overstimulation that is happening these abundance of choices that we have in in today's modern world well, I mean, I think one way that we deal with the world being so big and overwhelming with so many choices is that we have to create a very safe and small environment at home. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, whether that means creating a safe uh, feeling of family at home, whether that means um, 
having a community that shares your values, whether it's a religious community or not a religious community, whatever community you have. Um, and so what we do, so I live in New York City, which is a very overwhelming place to many people, but it's not overwhelming to me because I live in a space of 10 blocks. My, my town that I live in is 10 blocks. And so I've created a smaller world in which I feel safe. I go out of that 10 blocks, I'll go to restaurants downtown, I'll go whatever, I live in the Upper West Side, but, um, but, but I have created a smaller world for myself. And that's what we do when we, you know, when we create a very safe feeling world for them at home. One of the best ways of uh, finding myself and kind of defining myself is by looking at what I'm not. So, uh, and that, and you mentioned that briefly. So you take, take off the, the options that are there and say, okay, this is definitely not me, not me. And in the end, what you're left with is, is sometimes something completely different because especially in today's world, I think we are like um, boxing people and boxing movements and ideologies. And I find it much harder to identify with a box because it, it comes with that mentality. You're either with us or you're not. And you have to accept the whole package of this box to be part of our group. So that has led me towards like questioning my own values again at this age, not as, as a teenager. And I'm seeing that a lot of the isms that exist out there are just not for me because I cannot fully identify with one thing and say, this is me. So and that is liberating, but it's also isolating because a lot of people will not accept me and I can't go into their box because I'm thinking outside of it. Have you experienced anything similar or yeah, you know what so I'm talking I, about? Yeah. I, always encourage, I always encourage adolescents who don't feel they fit into a box to reject the boxes, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a, a trend right now to um, have to identify with the he series or the she series or the they series mm -hmm. or, um, or I'm, you know, or I'm black or I'm white or I'm uh, Latino or, and identity is a very complicated thing. And it's not, it's, it's a nuanced thing for most people. It's not so binary. And so, um, and so, yeah, I encourage adolescents who are struggling to just say, I don't want to declare who I am right now. I'm an ever evolving person and I, I'm not sure, but I don't want to declare who I am right now. I don't fit into any of those boxes and I don't want to fit in a box. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. And those are, again, the, the judgments of perfection. We are the, the idea is to look for a perfect person. And yeah. what gets me is when, when, for example, Thomas Jefferson gets criticized, and I, I, I'm a huge uh, fan of him, and I've, I've read books about him and so on. Sure, he's a flawed individual, but so is everyone. And that idea, like, because he had slaves, he is not a person we should look up to. I disagree with that. And it's, it's just kind of that narrow way of thinking. We want to be ha having an open mind, but it is so limiting that it is not having an open mind. So there's a dilemma there I see with, with a lot of these movements. One thing you mentioned about activism, I find with teenagers too, is they embrace the cause, but there is a, perhaps a lack of empathy that comes with it or emotional maturity. And I see that, unfortunately, I must say, with a lot of activists where I feel that that emotional part is missing. And it's yeah. just like, you know, forcing you into that box where you say, no, I don't want to go there. It's more belonging. It's more belonging exactly. to it. It's the lack of community, perhaps. And it's creating yeah. that sense creating of community. community. It's, it's a sense of belonging rather than, um, yeah. So activism is popular, but more as a sense of belonging and identity rather than empathy. Empathy isn't fully developed till till 25. It's rather erratic. I would say that most adolescents in middle adolescence, which is like 14 to 18, which is when activism is at its peak, most adolescents are very unempathic um, because they're very self-centered. And, you know, it's, it always relieves parent, parents to hear that it's normal for teenagers to be self-centered and that it's actually a developmental milestone to become self-centered because as they're working so intensely on their interior and their identity, um, there's no energy left over for anything else or anyone else. So they're very self-centered as a way to develop. And then once they've developed, then they can start to share themselves with the world. But 
in, in middle adolescence, they, they can be very unempathic and very self-centered. But that is the, I guess, the, the paradox of that uh, is that they are very involved in these activist movements, but that doesn't mean that it's, it's motivated out of empathy. Yeah. And, and they, they view things as, as permanent. So if they are feeling hopeless and depressed, it's, it's something that I'm stuck there. And I, I think people who are suffering from depression often feel the same way, where you say, this is going to stay forever. And, and, and that's not the case. And uh, when you mention also chronic loneliness is like uh, smoking 15 cigarettes a day, which is, you know, this is, and we are suffering from loneliness in, in today's society. We are feeling stuck. So um, what would be a good way of trying to get unstuck from this and seeing the world as 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 not as um, as dangerous or hostile, it looks it appears that way. But uh, how can we overcome this this anxiety that that we all share, but especially teenagers? Well, there's two different things you mentioned. One is the idea of past, present, and future. So right with um, adolescence, there there is in middle adolescence again the the teenage years. So it's why I don't use the the, the term teenager too much in the book, because if I use the term teenager, what we're really implying there is middle adolescence. Adolescence is much longer, right? Starts at nine, as early as nine and ends at 25. So you wouldn't call them teenagers, but teenagers are sort of in the middle, the middle. Um, and they're very present focused. And so, and those are the kids who generally, uh, when they suffer from depression or anxiety, they cannot see their way out of it. It's why the suicide rates are very high in the middle because they don't, they can't see the future yet. And when they get out of it, out of the tunnel and they get to late adolescence, then they can actually see that the future can be different than the present, right? Um, so there's that issue. Um, and so loneliness can feel like a permanent state of affairs. We all have lonely moments, as you know, if you've read Melanie Klein, she talks very much about depression as a developmental period in early childhood. And it's something that we pass through when we are mourning losses. In, in, in the case of Melanie Klein describing, we mourn the ideal of our mothers. We mourn the loss of the ideal and we get sad and then we get angry and we move through it. And then we get to the other side where we can accept the imperfect. Many, many children today never really were transformed in that way. They never moved through because the way that Melanie Klein says that you move through is to have the presence, the emotional presence and the love and the attention of your mother helping you through accepting her as, as not being ideal. So we have a lot of kids who are deeply lonely um, in adolescence with what we call anaclytic depression, which is loss of mother, which goes back to very early in development. So as we say, it's all connected. So when we feel lonely as an adult, and I don't mean a moment, a temporary moment of loneliness. We all have temporary moments of loneliness. We all have temporary moments of depression. We all have temporary moments of anxiety. That doesn't make us clinically anxious, clinically depressed, or clinically lonely. Um, but when we are lonely in a more chronic and more intense way, usually uh, it has roots in very early development, uh, which goes back to what we call anaclytic depression, which is loss of mother. When our mothers were either distracted or absent or uh, emotionally distant or physically absent. Um, yeah, and that's a scar that doesn't necessarily heal. We continue to move forward in development, but as I said, there are gaps that leave holes in our development. And one of those holes is, is a deep sense of loneliness later on. So uh, adolescence is, is often maybe a stage where you can fix mistakes you made earlier, perhaps as a parent, because there's the idea of like, okay, this is another period. I didn't do well in the first one. Let's let's uh, try to make up for it. So would that be a, a, a way of, of fixing mistakes that one has made, would you say? Repair, repair, repair. Exactly. Repair is a very important part. So Melanie Klein talks about repair too. Um, repair is, a so we all make mistakes. And it's one thing that I think is happening with this woke generation, this cancel culture generation, which is you can't make mistakes. 
there is no repair. You can't be imperfect. I mean, we tell, you know, they tell each other it's okay to be imperfect, but in fact, you cannot be imperfect. You must be perfect and you can't make mistakes. You can't say the wrong thing. You can't do the wrong thing. So if you ask me the biggest difference between my generation, so I'm almost 60, right? I'm 57. And the current generation is that, um, is that in my generation, we made all kinds of mistakes and we were allowed to say stupid things and do stupid things and learn from it. Exactly. Uh, we had our peers to put us in our place. We had our parents and our teachers, but we were forgiven. We could be forgiven if we had remorse. We could be forgiven if we learned from it. And so that allowed us to be imperfect, right? So the key to healthy self-esteem is accepting your imperfections. So we have these kids walking around on eggshells feeling that if they're not perfect, they suck. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and so that's very damaging and contributes a lot to the depression and anxiety that we're seeing. I, I found it very fascinating. Sally Cohn, uh, she uh, used to work for, for Fox News and she's a lesbian and she's a liberal, but um, she had an interesting point about the difference between political correctness and emotional correctness. Mm -hmm. And so what we need to do is be emotionally correct and being um, uh, like using empathy and so on, instead of just uh, going by the meaning of the words or what is it we're saying. So I, I found that fascinating because I hadn't thought about it in that sense. And I found it fascinating that she would be there with conservatives uh, and being a liberal. But she also said she had an empathic view of somebody like Sean Hannity. She said, okay, 99% of what he believes in, I don't agree with, but there's 1% that we have in common and that he's not a bad person because when somebody's in trouble, he will have your back. He will help you out. So that idea of whole scale, like these people are all evil. These people are good. That is, I think, um, causing that division where we don't really reach out to help others. Yeah, it is. Again, it goes back to mature emotional health and emotional mental health is, is nuanced. It's not binary and it's not rigid and it's not inflexible. So yeah, I agree. I think, um, I think there is no room for the imperfect and, uh, and, and no room for differences of opinion and no room for um, flexibility, you mm -hmm. know, flexibility of any kind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and again, it's annoying. It's kind of um, annoying as well, but it's kind of like uh, um, contrary to what they're saying because when you talk about fluid uh, being fluid, and you are fixed at the same time, when you uh, again uh, say don't uh, judge others, but you are constantly judging yourself. So that kind of double standard that that is happening. And, was, it, was, it, was it the Dalai Lama who said? Uh, I think it was the Dalai Lama who said, um, "Those that make others suffer." are the ones who are suffering most themselves. Yes, that's absolutely true. And, and speaking of suffering, I mean, that's when we do our most learning. I mean, that is those mistakes, uh, those moments of suffering have been so, um, uh, so mind-blowing and eye-opening for myself because um, I wouldn't learn anything if I don't make mistakes and I don't suffer. So okay. they are a staple part. That's why adolescence is so important because that you're, you're, you're setting the foundation for your future and you need to suffer. I think nature wants us to, to go through that so that we take those lessons and then have a fruitful adult life. The problem is with the adolescents now, if they make a mistake, um, the, the suffering is, in, is ten, tenfold intense, meaning... There is, if there's no forgiveness, then there's no future, you see. So in forgiveness, you can imagine a future where you're forgiven. There's no forgiveness now. You can literally be canceled. You can be outed. You can be rejected by your peers and rejected on social media in such a vast way that there is no future and there is no forgiveness and there is no learning and moving on. So it really is a dilemma right now. Mm -hmm. And it's, again, very, very juvenile of ostracizing people and not opening that dialogue or communication. And one of the things that's happening with, uh, with our world too, with, with dem democracy, it's kind of a gamble, because it really depends, like, what does the majority feel and think 
So that's the kind of uh, direction we would take. But it does seem that minority is also gaining a lot of steam there. And many people are, are just follow, following them and not uh, daring to, to say anything. And that uh, idea of self-censorship that is happening and censorship uh, around the world too. I think that is, that is, again, like you said earlier, it's like you're allowed to express yourself because that's how you learn and you get feedback. And people tell you with kids too, okay, what you said uh, could be misconstrued or was wrong, your action was not very empathetic and so on. So you can adjust, but if you don't do it, you can't just be perfect right from the start. I mean, that's anyway, that's like impossible to be perfect, but you have to keep trying, trial and error, right? And, and a, whole, um, uh, a whole being is based on that through evolution. And we can't expect things just to change overnight as well and suddenly become completely different without going through those stages, I believe. Uh, you mentioned also ADHD, which uh, is uh, troubling to me because I think it's it's often like uh, misdiagnosed in in many cases in schools. Um, I saw a talk about uh, um, uh, a neuroscientist, and she said uh, she went to a middle school because she knows there's a lot of cases happening there. And when she visited the the school, she noticed that the kids were were supposed to sit in front listen to the teacher, the teacher was extremely boring, not engaging, so they would fidget and they would not pay attention and they would uh, kind of react in different ways, aggressive ways and so on, or just kind of stare into, into nothing. And so there is a reason for that. Yeah. Often misconstrued. Far be it for the adults to take responsibility for not really engaging young people. It's put on young people. Again, you know, as you said, um, when you mentioned Caesar Milan and training dogs, you know, I mean, we we don't as adults often take responsibility for um, the stress that is being put on these kids. So it is stressful for a young child or even an adolescent child to sit quietly um, and, you know, and deal with boredom. I mean, we don't help them in any way to deal with boredom. We don't help them in terms of, it's not natural for them to just sit quietly for hours at a time. Even little kids, I mean, I can't tell you, the whole nursery school, preschool movement has moved towards um, the expectation, the unrealistic expectation that children should sit in circle time for long periods of time when it's not natural to a young child to do so. And it's not natural to an adolescent. In fact, there are parts of the adolescent brain that are, as I said, shifting and, and being and reorganized and pruning um, that actually benefit from physical movement. Um, the hippocampus, which is responsible for learning, it's where we have uh, where we have working memory is developing. Um, and the hippocampus is also responsible for shutting off the cortisol response. It's a very critical part of the brain and it responds the best to physical exercise. So when we get kids up and moving around, their brains actually develop in, in a healthier way and they learn more easily. So if you can get a kid to be physical and then sit down and learn for short periods of time, physical and then sit down and learn for short periods of time. That's far better in terms of, how should we say it? Um, going with the growth of the, you know, so th there's, uh, there's an expression, which is, you know, in waxing, women get their hair waxed all the time. You have to go with the growth of the hair before you pull away. We don't actually go with the growth. We, we, don't, we don't actually lean into our children. We expect them we adultomorphize, we project onto them that they're more adult and that they're like us and they're not. And we don't adapt to them, we make them adapt to us. Yeah. And that's a problem and that causes stress and that ADHD is a symptom. So I just wanna clarify and I do it in all my books. It is a symptom of something deeper. It is a symptom of stress. It's what we call hypervigilance of the brain, right? So when the brain is in a very stressed state, it's in a fight or flight state. It's actually the flight state that causes the ADHD, the distractibility response. And it is a response to stress. So rather than thinking about the deeper meaning of what, why is this child under stress? What's going on in this child's life that's causing 
him or her stress, um, we go to let's silence the symptoms. This is a disorder in and of itself. Let's just get rid of the symptoms because as adults, we don't really wanna think about our children. We don't really wanna think deeply about them or what's causing them to be under stress because we may be part of the problem. So parents then disavow, they disown any responsibility and say, fix my child, give them pills to silence their distress, which is what ADHD is just distress. Um, rather than looking at what's causing the distress and getting to the root of that. I completely agree with you. And so we, we went through a phase where uh, my son uh, had a horrible, uh, really horrible teacher. Uh, she made him cry on his birthday years ago in, in, in elementary school. And so he, and he was showing signs of uh, anxiety and uh, he had twitching, his eye was twitching and so on. And so um, we went and, and talked to, to the principals, but they said, no, it's him. Is suffering from anxiety, so he should uh, follow and uh, get medication or whatever. And they were they were kind of saying that to us. And I I have uh, in a strong impassion uh, in uh, in psychology, and I knew that was not true. And I said, well, just change him, switch him to another teacher, and he will be fine. And they resisted, so we had to actually go to the school board. And then finally, that was happened because we were I was adamant, we were adamant, he's not going back to school with that that horrible person. And when he switched, he was fine. It just like right, right a few days after that, he the symptoms disappeared, he was happier and so on, and he was thriving. So at that moment, I think a lot of parents, and you say in a way, uh, lazy parents, but also parents who don't take responsibility would say, okay, we will follow your advice and let's put him on medication. And that does serious harm to, to, to a healthy child. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's the adults, it's the teachers, and it's we really have to um, get involved uh, in the lives of our children. And I feel like many people misunderstand independence by saying, you're on your own now. Uh, they're not. We have to support them. We have to help them. We have to be there for them, be present. And I don't see that with a lot of parents like in, in, in our surroundings. And it is just so sad. And then they <laughs> say, why are the kids suffering? Right. They do get, I think parents do get confused with all the messages around. I think there's very conflicting messages that are very confusing. You know, it's, it's make your children independent and, um, but, but be there for them. Don't be a helicopter parent, but, you know, but do everything, for, you know, I think there's very mixed messages. And I think the, I think it's hard for parents to distinguish the idea of encouraging your children to be more independent in their activities, meaning um, to try to do their homework on their own, to uh, be able to walk home from school, to be able to, um, you know, be with their friends on their own. Sort of the right. idea of doing doing things on their own versus being on their own emotionally, and I think that's that is the subtle difference. So, and and I think because parents can't always understand the subtlety of that difference. They, that in fact, you do wanna encourage your children to do more on their own uh, if they can. So in other words, parents come to me and they say, you know, my child, I sit with them and I do their homework with them. And I say, well, I mean, are they capable of trying to do it on their own before you jump in and, and help them? And they say, well, I don't want them to feel, you know, as if they're alone. I say, no, no, it's okay for them to actually try to do it on their own and be there for them so when they need you and particularly if they're feeling in distress or anxious about it they can turn to you but you do want to encourage them to try to do things on their own but then you want to be there to help them to process feelings when they can't and i think that is that's the nuance that is lost on a lot of parents and as you were saying earlier the natural growth because we find we often go with okay what feels comfortable we we do want to push a bit but what feels comfortable to you and when when he decides you know what i want to go uh, to school on my own and then he actually pushes you away at uh, at that point so I, I think it's really also trusting your child and you mentioned child centric a uh, child centric approach i completely agree with that because every child is different and in our case, I, I believe my son is a highly sensitive person, so he does react to stress, but it doesn't mean that it more strongly than perhaps another person. But I find that is a blessing because it's, it's, it's actually he's very lucky to, to, to have that condition. I think to a degree I have as well. 
And um, I think that's really important to acknowledge that. But the idea of like, okay, these are the symptoms. We see these symptoms in this child. He or she needs medication is completely wrong. Completely wrong. And what you just said is that many, many children are born sensitive. And what that means is sensitive to stress in the environment. It means uh, sensitive to any adversity and also sensitive meaning in need of more comfort when they're in distress. And those, if, if well, the research shows that with very young children um, under the age of one, if their sensitivity is met by a sensitive environment, meaning a sensitive, empathic, nurturing caregiver, uh, attachment figure, then it neutralizes the sensitivity going forward. If, however, that child's sensitivity is met with insensitivity, dismissing their emotions, harshly setting boundaries, uh, being absent, not, not soothing them in distress, you know, um, that that child then that sensitivity is exacerbated and sometimes in a more permanent way. But we know that we can actually as parents soften and neutralize a lot of that sensitivity going forward if we ourselves are sensitive with our children. So hopefully the book that I've written now, the first and the second can teach parents how to be sensitive empathic nurturers so they can neutralize some of the sensitivity in their children. So those children can deal with more adversity and cope with more challenges, right? Be become more resilient. Absolutely. And, and resilience is something you say, and uh, absolutely correct, that we should also model in them, like empathy. And it's not something that is uh, often uh, automatic. But the other thing about the brain, too, is I, I heard about the uh, how the amygdala can hijack the rest of, of your brain. So when you're in that state of stress, when, uh, for example, my son was stressed in that classroom because uh, the teacher was shouting at him and screaming at the, all the kids, then you, you block off and you don't get to the higher uh, functioning of your brain. And so you cannot learn. And that is not exactly a productive right. environment. It's not helping in any way. It's uh, doing a lot of harm. Well, the threat sensing, the amygdala is the threat sensing part mm -hmm. of the brain. So I want you to imagine that you're being chased by a saber-toothed tiger and you're running or you're fighting, are you in that moment able to sit quietly and learn something? No, so I mean, it, basically you have a child who's in the midst of a fight or flight reaction when you have distractibility. And so, yeah, you can't expect a child who's in the middle of a fight or flight reaction to be learning, to be able to learn, we have to be able to regulate our emotions. That's a very important part of the ability to learn. Um, so, and, and there is this disparity, what we call asymmetrical development of uh, two parts of the brain, three parts of the brain really. So you have the amygdala and the ventral striatum. The ventral striatum is the reward center, which produces dopamine in the response to novel situations and stimulation. And um, that's racing ahead in development. And so is the amygdala. So the threat sensing part of the brain. And because those two parts are very active, but the prefrontal cortex of so the emotional regulating part of the brain is lagging behind in development. You have a lot of issues, which is that you have to help your child kind of, you have to hold your child in those years, physically and emotionally, until the PFC can catch, catch up in development and regulate things like the fight or flight response and regulate the reward centers not going over the top in response to stimulation. Um, so that's our job. Our job is to uh, understand. I mean, I think until we had an understanding of neuroscience, which we didn't until about the 1990s when we had lots of equipment like fMRI machines to help us to understand the length of adolescence, but also what's actually happening in the brain. Uh, did we really fully understand that um, they're nothing like us adolescents? They aren't like us because, um, and there's lots of research to show it in terms of brain research to show that they're nothing like us because that right brain, that prefrontal cortex, that emotional regulating part of our brain as adults is more is more active, is more functional. And so we don't have that disparity of development. We don't have that asymmetrical development, which makes it much harder for them to control the fight or flight response. 
And, and that prefrontal cortex is also influencing the way we plan for the future. And in many yeah. cases, if we're stuck in something that is negative, like negative experiences and trauma, we're going to have a bleak view of the future. And it's kind of that vicious cycle that keeps like growing and growing and we don't see a way out of it. Yeah. So it, well, yeah. Things like executive functioning and the ability to perceive of the future. And yeah, those are all part of right brain functioning. And again, that development is very much lagging behind. I, I mean, I love when teachers are always saying, oh, this child has executive functioning issues. I'm like, all children under the age of 25 have executive functioning issues. I have a very together organized 22 year old son and he has executive functioning issues and he's functional, but he still has executive functioning issues because that's the way it works. Um, things that are exciting and new and novel, they take precedence over and, and things like working memory, the ability to remember, you know, I mean, just to give you a little example, you know, I can say to my 22 year old son, you know, can you take the garbage out? I'll say, absolutely, mom, I will do it right after I'm done with dinner, okay. And the garbage is never taken out. And I'll say, you know, did you remember to take the garbage out? And he'll say, oh, you're so right. I forgot. I'll take it out. You know, two hours later, I noticed you hadn't taken the garbage out. He's like, oh, my God, I really meant to. I, I, but it's really not, you know, it's a little bit like um, Alzheimer's. They, <laughs> they have a little bit of uh, dementia-like behavior. And that's because that part of their brain is not fully developed. Now, if in three years, I still say to my son, take the garbage out and he forgets, then we know, you know, Houston, there's a problem. But by then, he'll be fine because that's the way the brain works. But we're, you know, we're also as adults, I think, um, we get angry repeating ourselves with our children. When repetition is critical for the first 25 years, you know, do you remember Teletubbies? Do you remember yeah, Teletubbies? I do. Yeah. Yeah. So I, Teletubbies had a psychologist, I think, who was a, a consultant on their show. And it was brilliantly done because it was the whole show was about repetition. <laughs> it was, uh-oh, pocketbook. <laughs> Uh oh, pocketbook. Uh oh, but you know, one of them had a pocketbook, or uh oh, spill. Uh oh, and they would go over and over, which is what toddlers do. And guess what? You have to do the same kind of repetition to help adolescents learn. And parents think, oh, they're not respecting me. They're not listening to me. They, you know, they're being resistant and rebellious and defensive sometimes, but most of the time, it's just that their brains are not. You have to patiently and calmly repeat yourself like you did when they were a toddler. Um, and generally, if parents can't do that, their own parents were very impatient, intolerant, and didn't understand the development of an adolescent brain. Yeah, and but there is a way out of that too. I mean, I, I my mother is a narcissist, and it's just like it's hard, and there are a lot of lessons you learn. But then you can learn from those mistakes and say, you know, this is what I'm not gonna do. Instead of just repeating patterns that kind of are inherited to you, it's like that doesn't work for me, and kind of evaluate each of those parts. I, I love the example you give of, of your son who uh, went and had his first kisses with various uh, girls. And then you said, no, I mean, the first kiss is when you have it with somebody you deeply care about. Yes. That is the real one. And I think we see that also with uh, um, the idea of uh, sexuality, where people think the more the better. And it's instead of having that close relationship with a few, or again, with Facebook friends, I have, you say, 100 Facebook friends, instead of having two, three really close ones. And that is a, a misconception that we have in our society. More is better. I think it's really about not quantity, but quality. Yeah. And uh, we need to foment that. And we need to also be, uh, uh, be aware of not displacing our own anxiety or projecting them onto our children. So one of my issues was I, I love classical music and I loved it when I was a teen. My son does not. But yeah. I read your book and it says, you said, it's fine. Maybe later on he will like classical music or movies or books as much as I do. So that gave me hope there. Yeah. <laughs> there is <Yeah>. hope. <laughs> and, it, and if you press it in the moment and you force it on them, rather than accepting their differences, they will never return to anything that, that you like. I mean, they have, just as you had, the ability to pick and choose what you want. That's part of the individuation process. You get to pick and choose what you want to keep 
of your parents and what you don't. And if your parents aren't angry or resentful or defensive or feel rejected by you, but are just steady and holding and containing, then generally kids will take more of the parts of their parents than they than parents think in the moment, you know. Exactly. And it's it's the idea of entitlement too. Because you are my child, you have to do what I do or be as I am. And that's not true. And to give them the space and they will be very similar in many ways, but then also different, which yeah. is a great thing. I mean, we don't want exact replicas of ourselves. Otherwise, we're cloning ourselves. And what's the point of that? <laughs> you just said it, a narcissistic parent who has a narcissistic personality. I mean, we all have some narcissism, but a narcissistic personality disorder will demand that their child be an extension of themselves and not accept the differences. But a healthier parent will mourn, be sad and mourn the fact that their child isn't like them in certain ways or doesn't like the same things, but will not, you know, but will accept it, right? So we all have to mourn that our child doesn't like classical music. I like classical music too. And I used to sing opera and my kids would never listen to opera, you know, but, um, but the point is that we mourn and we say, that's okay. You know, they're different than me and that's kind of sad, but I can accept it because what they like is important to them. And they're different. They're a different person than me. You know, from the moment our children are born, um, even while we're attaching to them, we're also separating from them. You'd say there's the recognition in a healthy parent that from the moment a child is born, they're a separate little person. Um, they're separate than us. And that means, you know, we, we want to healthily attach to them. But we have to recognize their individuality, right? That they're not us. It's like the me, not me phenomenon. And so, yeah, healthy parents can throughout the process of childhood recognize that their child is not them. Um, what did the poet say? The, uh, the Iranian poet said, uh, of me, but not me, right? Oh, I like that. Yeah, and so yeah, and 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 that is a good thing. But as you say, there is also an an element of of mourning, as you say, because also the idea of like yes, we're going through, and I say we measure time with our children, because I'm aware that uh, if some years from now he will forge his own path and 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 leave us and leave the home. And the thought terrifies me, but I know I have to go through it. And we, we can't be stuck in just one moment of time. And I, I feel like uh, in many cases, parents are stuck in a specific moment of time again. When we are, when uh, when I was a kid, for example, and that's they're trying to repeat something that is not applicable anymore. That's completely out fashion, and um, it's out of uh, outdated. And the other thing might be also for I, I grew up again uh, in a different. Uh, period of time where things were different and um, I did not have phones and we had rotary phones and uh, I remember what that was like and I don't I, I don't miss it but at the same time it was great that I went through the experiences but then I can't expect kids growing up in this modern age to be exactly the same way as I was because my experiences were completely different yeah and yeah. so what, what happens is too, then this is, I think that the big problem, I think with, with humanity is that our brains are trying to prepare for the years ahead. So the first 25 years, our brain is developing, it's responding to the environment, it's perceptive, and then it kind of gets a bit locked. But the problem is the life that we are rehearsing is going to be different and it's rapidly changing. So you are preparing for a life that will already have changed by the time you reach that age so and it's and you mentioned that parents seem the, the kids think of the parents and uh, and uh, adolescents too they cannot control things because the world has gone uh, they're not in control anymore right it's outside of their control and we feel that more than we probably felt it in previous generations and that is causing adding extra layers to the anxiety. And uh, that's a new age of anxiety. I think that's what you are referring to with, again, most recent example would be COVID. Yeah, I mean, I would say that we don't give it much thought, but um, for thousands of years, human beings, there wasn't that much progress. And so we lived in the same communities. And for the most part, we lived the same way from generation to generation, right? It's only maybe in the last, I don't know, 300 or 400 years, there's been this kind of almost amping up of progress. And so that's made the adolescent experience even harder because, um, you know, they literally, as you said, 
our experience is very different than their experience. Whereas in the past, and I mean way past, I mean hundreds of years ago, again, for thousands of years, the experience from generation to generation was more similar, right? We lived on farms, we lived in farming communities, we, you know, um, it, the, the experience was more similar. We had communities that were consistent and there was continuity to those communities and people never left their communities. And now I think it's become a very fast paced, transient world with a lot of change. And so that's made it even hard. It's made the gap between generations even greater, right? As you say, um, for you, it's the rotary phone. For our parents, it was the television. I mean, my parents didn't grow up with television. And suddenly there's this thing in your house that everybody's staring at, you know. Um, and so those kinds of developments, they, they distinguish, they, they create a chasm between the generations. So, and we can't stop progress. And I think actually it's going to speed up even more. I think it's getting crazy how fast the changes are happening. Uh, I say, just look at the iPhone, right? Look at the changes in the iPhone from year to year. I mean, and so that just makes it even harder for the generations to communicate, right? But it's very important that we not stop trying. And uh, I, I do have faith in, in in humanity that we will be able to transform and adapt to it and 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 learn from it. But as long as we are open to it and we don't just become zombies or robots following a machine way of living, but actually like really um, be in touch with our emotions. So one thing and have empathy. And, and reading your book, I feel like I do have a lot of empathy, of course, for my son, but I had more because there's a lot of things that I didn't know I was worried about and it has become clearer. Like we talk about video games or classical music and I say, okay, we're, we're doing okay. And again, we are not perfect. And that's not even the goal here. It's just to, to be as, as good as we can. I like the uh, good enough uh, parent uh, term and good enough mother and father. So I think we need to do that, but we do have to put in the effort. And, uh, and, um, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful book. Uh, you have your own personal experience of, of, of having kids. And that's another thing. Some people give you advice and they don't even have kids themselves. So uh, that's um, doubtful. But I also love, again, your, your view, because um, uh, I'm a huge fan of psychoanalysis. And in, in, in all my talks, I, I try to sell it to people, adver advertise it a bit, but I don't have to do anything here because I, I feel like also a bit uh, overwhelmed myself because I'm talking to a disciple of Freud. So, so it's, it's, it's a very humbling experience, but thank you so much for agreeing to this interview. Uh, the book, Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling, Raising Res uh, Resilient Adolescents in the New Age of Anxiety is an excellent book. Thank you so much for writing it. And thank you so much for, for being here on A Rashes World. For having me. Thank you for interviewing me. Thanks so much.